liturgical significance of our different robes today, they're just a lot cooler than the black ones. Uh, so that's it. That's the liturgical significance. And I think it makes me look gentler, don't you? We'll see how that goes here as we look at Hebrews 4. Verse 12 and verse 13, two of the most glorious. How do you say that about any particular verses? But certainly two of the most glorious verses in the whole New Testament. Uh, as we have before us the very power of the Word of God in this text. But let us not forget the context because it is important that we recognize that these verses come as an antidote as such to unbelief, disobedience. Remember, the first 11 verses of the story of the unbelieving generation of Israelites who did not enter the promised land because of disobedience and unbelief. Unbelief and disobedience. Those two beget each other and feed off one another. And as an antidote, God reminds us, the people, the covenant people of God living today, that the word of God sees through these false commitments that we make. Sees through falsity in our hearts. We could say we're the people of God, but recognize that his word will pierce that and his judgment cannot be avoided. Uh, so the way we look at this text about the sword being drawn has to do with God drawing his sword. It's not a call for you to draw the sword. It's a call for God to draw his sword, as it has its right effect on us, the people of God. Uh, this analogy is throughout Scripture. We'll see that as we move through this text. But now hear God's word, Hebrews 4. I'll read verse 11 for context, and then verse 12 and verse 13. Hear God's word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have said through one of your prophets, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth, that shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Accomplish your purpose in the lives of your people here gathered, I pray. Amen. We're on Memorial Day weekend, and it would be amiss to not mention again how thankful I am personally, and I hope you are collectively, for what has been purchased for us here in our country that I could preach this sermon to you this morning. It's because people gave their lives for it. Let us not lose sight of that. No matter what you think of, of the particulars of these things, recognize that we could not do this. We could not be here if people had not paid that ultimate sacrifice. Many of you, some in your own families that you know, laid down their lives so that we could have this freedom. I hope that we appreciate that and give praise to God for this and not squander the heritage that we've been given. In this light, as I look at this text and see a reference to a sword, I think in terms of this uh, weaponry or the instruments that are used in such enterprises and, and the comparison that the Bible makes between the Word of God and a sword and, and other weapons like a hammer and so forth that the Bible is referred to as. Then I think in terms of how this has developed in this world. You remember ever since Cain killed Abel, fallen man has found himself at conflict with one another. Wars have littered the landscape of history. In fact, those who study it will tell you that over the last 6,000 years of recorded history, almost 15,000 armed conflicts have happened. Hardly 200 years in that whole span of 6,000 years 
of total time where there weren't wars to be reported or recorded. Over three billion people, we are told, have lost their lives in these conflicts over the course of the last 6,000 years. And if one would do a survey, you would notice that one of the chief contributing factors, humanly speaking, the providence of God not figured in, the chief factor happens to be the proficiency and efficiency and effectiveness of the weaponry used. Generally, the people with the best weapons win. Now, we know that's not always the case, because you can think in the scriptures of the historical accounts of times where God gave victory uh, despite being outnumbered or, out, or outmanned or outweaponed. Happened several times in the life of Israel. But generally speaking, the best weapons will win. So it has to be that people keep on the edge of this all the time. In fact, if you think of the earliest days of warfare, there was basically hand-to-hand combat-type instruments like knives and spears. Eventually, bows were developed, and there was longer-range attack mechanisms devised. But still, it was pretty primitive, and it was pretty close hand-to-hand. Most historians will tell you, war historians, that one of the great advents for the warrior was the chariot. The Egyptians perfected the chariot. This opened up warfare, mobility, power, the ability to strike. In fact, it's one of the reasons why the Egyptians were so powerful. One of the reasons why it's so amazing that the Israelites were able to be freed from the Egyptians as they pursued them with their chariots. Well, eventually defensive weapons were made to defend against the chariot, and the chariot became obsolete. These Greek phalanxes were made, these lines of troops that would be together with their spears and their shields side by side, and as a horse would try to ram, uh, those spears would be dug into the ground and it would impale both horse and rider, and eventually the chariot and even the horse and rider became less and less effective in warfare as as defensive weapons were discovered and improved. Then came the Romans and their host of projectile-throwing instruments and weapons. They perfected the bow and arrow. They also introduced the catapult and the trebuchet. They also introduced mechanisms that would fire javelins over great distances, so now they could strike for hundreds and hundreds of yards away. But then was the invention of gunpowder in China. Then you have cannons, you have handheld guns, you have muzzle-loading muskets, you have Uh, single-fire rifles, uh, multiple-fire, semi-automatic rifles, automatic rifles, all those things that we see today in modern warfare, all things that if you had those things, and when you have those things, those cultures tended to be the ones who dominated. Weaponry was very important, especially in this fallen world. Modern days, we have seen the advent of naval warfare. In fact, one of the reasons why the Germans were so successful in the early part of World War II was because of their use of the submarine and the U-boat. Air warfare followed soon after. The ability to have dominance from the air gave you great, great capacity towards victory. In fact, today, to have an effective armed force, you have to be able to strike from the land, from the air, from the sea. Those who have the most cutting-edge weapons, they are the ones who typically prevail. In fact, we've seen in most recent times the advent of the most devastating of all weapons. The atomic bomb, its even more dreadful cousin, the nuclear bomb. Able to wipe out whole cities of human beings with just one Volkswagen-sized bomb. The bottom line, victory, depends on proficient, efficient, superior weapons. You can see that on the news every day. If you were heading into a battle you would want the best, most effective weapon, wouldn't you? But my brothers and sisters, you know we have not gathered for me to give you a history of that kind of warfare, because that's not what I'm here to speak of. I am here to speak of the most powerful weapon that has ever existed, 
and will ever exist. I'm here to speak of the weapon that God has given us, the instrument God has given us for his work in the world, and it's compared to a weapon. If we appreciate, if we appreciate how important it is to have the most proficient, effective, and efficient weapon, you will better appreciate that God's word is compared to just that. It's compared to a sword. It's God's sword. It's his weapon. In fact, Paul tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Don't be fooled. There is a war that's waging, and there is one effective weapon in that war. Unlike the the just vast array of weapons you can see today, there's one weapon that works in this warfare. That is the very word of God. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, Paul says, with the word of God. Don't underestimate its power. For all the seeming power that we have and all the trust we may place in chariots, recognize that it's the word of God that has the actual power to change people's hearts that stop wars from happening. In fact, the real effort is on the part of you and I as the church to administer the word of God so that it has its effect to change people so that we're not in the constant situation we find ourselves in a larger way. The word has that power. God speaks of it in this way. We are to treat the word of God as if our lives depended on it because it does both literally and figuratively. In fact, in this text, these two verses, we have given to us the fact that the Word of God is living and active, it's also defensive and offensive, and it's also, finally, piercing and revealing. This is the Word of God that we have been given. Let's consider this together. First, it is living and active, according to verse 12. As the verse begins, the Word of God is living and active. Now, remember the context. This is a way in which we have an antidote against disbelief or unbelief and disobedience. Remember that the Word of God is a weapon in the hands of God. It's, it is drawn. The sword is drawn. It's God's Word. Living and active. Think about this for a moment with me. Whereas every other written word, to some degree, is static, the Word of God is dynamic. It's alive. It's acting. Yes, there are great, inspiring pieces of human literature, no doubt, No question. Classics for sure. But there's no work that's living and active. Not living and active the way the Word of God is. Living literally means to be quickened, have a life of its own. It it has its own independence. And since the sword that we refer to as the Bible is its own weapon, unlike other weapons you pick up and use at your will, the Word of God's living, it has its own life. It's quickened in and of itself. To be living means that it has the ability at any moment to seize your conscience. That's the living word. It's active in this sense. It means that it's working in many ways. It's dynamic. It's always working and moving. It doesn't just have one way it affects. It constantly and consistently has its effect on us. It's active in that way, living and active. This was the last week of school. And on Wednesday, uh, my son, as part of a class gift to their teacher, was to pick up a long stem flower to put in a vase that she had on her desk was placed by one of the moms. So when we got to the supermarket, we went to the floral section, and I really wanted him to have an opportunity to pick his own flower for his teacher. 
And so he, we walked over to the section of long stem cut flowers, and he kept gravitating back to the potted plants that had flowers on them. And I said, we've got to get one of these who are cut. And he was bothered by the fact that the cut ones will eventually die. In fact, he was very concerned that they wouldn't make it to school. He thought, well, if we get it out and take it out of the water, because he understood it had to be tied to some life source. And just putting in the water even, because I told him, well, they'll put it in a vase. It'll, it'll stay for a few days. That didn't settle well with him. It only lasts for a little while. Whereas if I got Mrs. Preston, he almost said this exactly, if I get her one of these, it'll get flowers every year, right, Daddy? And it'll stay alive, right? Yeah, that's true, but we're supposed to bring the cut one to put in the vase. <laughs> so he was kind of bothered by this. He grabbed it and he walked it. He was holding it like a mortally wounded puppy all the way to school. He's holding it like this, and he's afraid, you know, to make sure that it had as much, uh, it could give as much beauty off as it could before it got there, so his teacher could see what, how he loved her and what he thought of her. But it bothered him that this cut rose, it was cut in his mind, that meant it's going to die eventually. I would compare all works, all human works, as much like the flower. They are beautiful in their own right. They are beautiful because they're created by people who are in the image of God. Even those who don't know Christ can produce something of the reflection of God in what they do. But it's fading. It it will die. And if it's not connected to eternal truth, it will not have lasting glory. It's there for a moment, but then it's gone. Beautiful in its own right, but gone soon enough. Whereas the potted plant is living, it will continue to produce over and over again. The flowers on that plant are connected to a life source. The Bible is like that potted plant. It's living and active. It's not just a flash, it's there and it's rooted. In fact, the way we can best understand the living and active nature of the Word of God is by two realities. It's living and active for this reason. Number one, the Bible is essentially, it is the Word of God. In other words, it's the deposit of divine revelation exactly the way God wanted to communicate it. If there was no quickening agent, if the Holy Spirit had no ministry after this book was written, it still would be the Word of God because it's God-breathed. That means he breathed it out and here it is. And so just by nature, just by its makeup, it is the Word of God. So it's living and active in that sense. First, that it is actually the Word of God, regardless of what you think about it. You know, when you debate with folks, and I have these at times, The debate isn't whether this is the Word of God. You don't have to believe it. It still is. In fact, the Scriptures tell us, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Everything else comes and goes, is what Isaiah says. The thing that stands, the thing that's always true, is this. And this is why it's so important that culture be shaped according to this, rather than culture shade what we think of what it says. If we get stuck in the second category, we'll be wandering aimlessly with no effectiveness in culture, with our proverbial hands stuck up in the wind, and following instead of leading according to eternal truth. So, living and active in that, it is in essence the Word of God. Also, though, secondly, and probably most importantly, at least as it relates to you and I living every day, the Bible is living and active because it is accompanied accompanied with the promise of the ongoing activity of the Holy Spirit. It's quickened. It's constantly active in that way. The Holy Spirit promises to come alongside the word that it has penned by God's will 
to then apply it and change your life as a result. It's living and active in that it is God's word, but it also comes with the promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit as we read it, as we study it, as we hear it taught, as we hear it preached. In fact, this is throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, Isaiah says wonderfully, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord. So his word will be placed in your mouth and then supernaturally it will be placed in your children's mouths and supernaturally be placed in their mouth. It's the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit that gives the scriptures the living and active designation that we have here in Hebrews. Jesus says something wonderful in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the fathers, the Father comes to me. So there's a supernatural promise of the Holy Spirit's accompanying the Word of God. Later in John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He promises further that when he departs, he'll send a helper to bring back to your memory all that he has written and revealed. Otherwise, if you were the disciples when Jesus is about ready to leave, you would be freaked out. There's no way I'm going to remember everything. Don't worry, I'm going to send the Spirit. So the Spirit comes and activates or quickens, if you will, the Word itself and applies it to your own life and heart. Paul said this in essence in 2 Corinthians 2 when he says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Why is it that you could pick up the scripture and it's such a profound effect in your life, yet you can hand it to someone else and they don't see any of it? Why is it that a six-year-old can be profoundly affected by reading one portion of scripture and a triple PhD from some prestigious university is blind to it? Because it's the Holy Spirit's work. No amount of my arguing will get you in. It's the Holy Spirit's work with exposure to the word this is what makes it living and active. This is what makes it totally and utterly different than every, any other written work. It is a supernatural work of God. As much as I'd like to humor myself about capabilities, ability, uh, gifting, and quips and phrases, I have no confidence in myself to help any of you. I have no confidence in myself to understand things. The confidence comes from the fact that God promises His Holy Spirit will illuminate, will make the word clear and plain and applicable to us. It's for us to be exposed to it in a consistent, regular basis. One of my favorite inferences regarding the inspiration or the, the illumination of the Holy Spirit is in the book of Acts, chapter 16, when Paul goes and meets this woman, Lydia, who, according to the text in Acts 16, was already a believer. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So she already had a relationship with the Lord, Paul comes now, before the scriptures are done being penned, and Paul is speaking the words of God as a prophet apostle as such. And the text says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is the illuminating ministry 
of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God. Spurgeon says it well, and we'd pay, we would do well to pay close attention to what he says. We would be abler teachers of others and less liable to be carried about by every wind of doctrine if we sought to have a more intelligent understanding of the Word of God. As the Holy Spirit, the author of the Scriptures, alone can enlighten us rightly to understand them, we should constantly ask His teaching and His guidance unto all truth. This is the importance, by the way, of the prayer for illumination in our liturgy. Now, you may, may have thought or just passed over, this is something the pastor does, right? I mean, it gives him a little break after reading the scripture and before he starts the sermon. But prayer for illumination historically was placed there because of a high regard for the need of the Holy Spirit to help us with the Word of God. It's, it was understood by our forefathers in the faith that no one could be affected for change, for Christ-likeness, apart for the whole, from the Holy Spirit taking the Word of God and applying it to your life and heart. doesn't happen naturally. It's utterly supernatural. Yes, God uses our rationality and our reason, but He ultimately quickens our spirit to believe. That is what the Spirit does. So the Word of God is living and it is active. It is also defensive and offensive. Just the very analogy of a sword implies this. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. Then it says, sharper than any two-edged sword. It doesn't directly equate it with a sword the same way Ephesians 6 does or Revelation does, but it does imply that like a sword, we might see the word of God. Uh, Directly relating to the opening reference to warfare that I started with, we see the word of God for what it is, this instrument, this sharp sword-like instrument. And it's God's instrument. Don't get me wrong when I say draw swords. It's asking God to draw his sword and bring it to bear on this world. Yes, a sword is used for defensive purposes as well as offensive. Think of how it's used defensively. As attack comes in, you would raise the sword to stop that attack as it comes down. And the sword would be able to be strong enough to stop that attack. But the sword would also be able to to strike back and swing with both sides because both sides are sharpened. And that's unusual. That would be a really excellent weapon in those days. Uh, Normally, one side was sharpened. The other side was thicker and more blunt for defensive purposes. It left you with really only one kind of way to wield that sword. Whereas a double-edged sword, that can be used to poke, to slice both ways, to defend against and defend, to go on offense. So the sword itself is a wonderful picture of how powerful and active God's word is. It's even more powerful when you realize it's his weapon. What side of it you are on is the question. That's the key. What side of the sword are you on? The sword is defensive and offensive, but what is it defending? I would submit to you it's not about defending you and I. It's about defending the majesty and the truth of who God is. That's what the sword means. It defends God. Now, if you are God's, it works to defend you. If you are opposing God, it works to offend you. That's the nature, the two-edged sword nature of the sword, which is the word of God. Think about how Paul uses this analogy, and he uses it a bit different. In Ephesians 6, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, over this present darkness, and so on. He then breaks down the different parts of the armor that we wear. Kids especially know the parts of the full armor of God. You can even buy one of these now. You could buy the full armor of God. Did you know that? Now, it's plastic and made in China, but it still, it looks like it. And it's each of the parts. And my children, ever since they've been little, have worn most of the armor of God. They lose some of the armor, and who knows where it appears and shows up at different times. Or they wore multiple of the same pieces of armor, 
But it's supposed to teach this idea that we're in a battle and that God has given us equipment to defend. In fact, as, uh, the text on wines in Ephesians 6, he says, "...in his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the, flames, the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." So we think the way Paul wrote it in terms of this weapon we use. But the author of Hebrews is using it differently. It's talking on the heels of people who are disobedient and did not go into the promised land. So it's telling us, the people of God, don't make that same mistake. God cannot be fooled. His sword is drawn. What side of the sword are you on? It will defend the majesty and character and justice of God. Are you on that side of it? Then it will go well with you. But if you are not on that side, if you are not on that side, his judgment, he will see it all. You can't hide it from him. In fact, this is the beautiful picture we have in the book of Revelation of the Lord Jesus. It's beautiful depending on what side of the sword you are on. Describing Jesus, John says, his feet were like a burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Do you see the way the sword is used? To cast, the full gaze of humanity is exposed to the sword of God. He sees it all. It's right about everything. It's true about it. It says it the way it is. It's applied to us as well as applied to the world. This leads us to the final, th- final proposition this text makes about the Scriptures. Yes, it's defensive and offensive. It's God's sword, but it's also piercing and revealing. Look at verse 12 again, the last portion. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If we were just completely straight up with each other, we would have to admit there are secret alcoves in our lives that we don't let even the closest people in our lives in. We may spread out that information if we tell anyone about it, but no one person knows us the way God knows us. No one person is able to go down and pierce to the division of the marrow and the joints. No one is able to see to the heart the way God does. In fact, I think we get in such a mode of building walls and wearing masks that it's possible for us to start thinking that God has no better perspective on us than everyone else. In other words, we equate with everyone else's opinion is of us, we equate that with the way God basically sees us. When we wake up out of, re, uh, out of this dream we're in and understand the reality that God sees us, that his word, his word itself, being living and active, will tell you everything there is to know about yourself. I uh, submit this to you, test it, Open the word, spend regular time in it, and tell me how it doesn't speak directly to you. Yes, it's about this eternal truth, but it also is personally true. And it tells me the truth about myself. One such example that you can all relate with is the constant cultural lie, I call it the big lie, that is behind most movies you see, most of the way people talk, even the way people form their worldview, this big lie that man is basically good. I hear even Christians say this. A former president who is a believer, I believe is a believer, said the reason why terrorists bomb innocent people, children, and and the like, is because they're in poverty and they're reacting to their poverty-stricken condition. No, see, the Word of God says they're wicked and evil. That's why they do it. 
and I'm wicked and evil. The only difference is Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's the truth. Now, I know it's not politically correct, but man is not good. Man is wicked and deceitful and left his own device. If you've ever seen the movie Lord of the Flies, that's what it looks like. If you've read the book, you know what happens when left to our own device. That's the truth. That's what the scripture says. Now, if you think man is basically good, as so many people say today, that will explain to you the many directions we have gone. It's nothing but justification for sin now if man is basically good. Education, for instance, if you study the history of it all, it's amazing. John Calvin, our own John Calvin, was one of the great uh, revealers of this truth. Man is not basically good. Your children, as cute as they are, their hearts are wicked and deceitful above all things. And they got it from you, so don't get too down on them. And Calvin recognized this and recognized that the Word of God must be brought to bear in the educational process, both formally and in discipleship roles in the home. And it's corrective. It's largely corrective. Now, that's not a negative focus. That's a realistic focus, that the Word must be applied to help correct who we are. And by the application of Christ's blood and the revelation of His Word, man can be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. From what is wicked and deceitful, dead in trespasses and sins, enemies to God, lovers of evil, from that to the children of God. He recognized this, and most of our early education believe this. Now if you go to university, and I know because my wife went through it, they will tell you that every child is a blank slate. Tabula rasa is what is said. And that means you build that child up. And that's what education is, is building someone who is amoral into something good, whatever society says is good. Where do you think that's gotten our educational process today? Exactly where you would think any lie would get us, in a huge pit. The Word of God is piercing and revealing. It tells the truth even when it's not comfortable. And men will not want to hear this. And only the Holy Spirit will make us want to hear it. I don't even want to hear it sometimes because it tells me the truth about me. On one hand, I can have the praises of man in my ear. On the other hand, I open the Word and know the truth about Tony. Piercing and revealing is the Word of God. Verse 12 piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. The word is so sharp that it can even divide that which seems indivisible. This is not promoting in any way the idea that man is, cre- is body, soul, and spirit, three parts. Rather, it's simply trying to hy- hyperbolically say that even that which is clearly one, it could divide that. You could take a bone that looks like a bone, and it's actually got the division of marrow and joints in the Word of God can pierce that. Something that seems impossible to divide, it can do it because it's God's Word. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that leaves me feeling extremely, extremely vulnerable before my Lord. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of my heart. You don't have to raise your hand, but do you ever feel like you ever, ever, ever do anything out of purity? Honestly. No, not the good Christian answer. Yes, I'm serving Jesus. I mean, seriously. If you ever really analyze something you've done and said it's been done with complete pure motives, you're gravely mistaken if you think that's possible. That's how deep the depravity runs. It's total. It touches every part of us. Paul pulled no punches. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we're by nature, by nature, children of wrath. 
The Bible tells us the truth we so desperately need. For when we have the truth, we know our need of the Savior. See, that's what's so wrong today. This idea that man is basically good is, is a lie. And so why would people who are basically good need any help from God? And they go along in this fog all the way to hell thinking that they're basically good. The word pierces and reveals and tells the truth and we need to live it out in our lives. We need to grasp the Savior anew every time we think of our own depravity. This is not meant to let us feel all discouraged and depressed about who we are. It's meant to point out our absolute need to persevere in faith in Christ. That's what it is there for. Verse 13, look what it says. No creature, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed, naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Naked and exposed. That is just, it's embarrassing to almost read that and consider that. Naked and exposed before God. That's what we are. We are naked and exposed before our Lord. How embarrassed would you be to be naked and exposed in front of people? But we are before our God. What clothes can you have on? What clothes is there that would protect us from the gaze of God? One set of clothes. The white robe that Christ gives, which is his righteousness. That's what we need. That's what we're reminded of. The word of God tells us the truth. The word of God shows us the right way. The word of God pierces. It divides. It knows us. All the things we can hide from each other. And brothers and sisters, we're good at hiding it. All the things that we think we are hiding from others, God knows. And he has an answer for it. His answer is his son's righteousness. He doesn't want you to sit there feeling guilty and depressed and inactive for him, but he wants you to cast that off. And he wants you to take on his son's yoke, which is light, light compared to the burden that we carry, the burden of works. The word of God is piercing, revealing. It tells us the truth, gives us an antidote, and it helps us. It directs us. It upholds us. I started by talking about the evolution of weaponry. But you know, it's interestingly interesting alongside the evolution of this weaponry, slowly but surely developed the evolution of the methods necessary to heal those wounds inflicted by these weapons. In fact, I am just staggered when I consider that over 3 billion war dead in the last 6,000 years, experts say that half, if not two-thirds of that could have been prevented if we simply had antiseptics, which we've only had for about 150 years, the ability to sterilize surgical instruments. Just that alone could have saved half of those deaths. Then with the advent of antibiotics and anesthesia, you put those things in the mix, it's amazing, it's amazing how much death could have been prevented. I would like us to think of the scriptures, yes, as a weapon, a weapon, God's weapon, that uses to defend his name and an offen that is impose himself upon us. Praise God he does. But it's also a surgical, a precision, a, a, a very precise surgical instrument used to operate on you to cut away that which needs to be cut away, to keep what's important. He knows it's in the hands of him, the surgeon. How, brothers and sisters, are you related to the sword? The sword is drawn. How are you related to it? I would just ask you to consider how regular you are in just your basic exposure to the word, just as an individual brother or sister in Christ, 
Do you have a regular time each day to open the Word? I think sometimes people get discouraged with this pursuit because they take too much at once. Uh, they just take a whole, I'm going to read the Bible this week. Go easy. It took thousands of years to, for God to deposit this Word. It's okay to take a few months to get through one book. Take sections at a time. Study it, but expose yourself to it on a daily basis. And this is an experiential argument, so I wouldn't use it with anyone other than brothers and sisters here gathered. But I've never, ever picked this up without it having some direct relevance to something I was dealing with at that time. Now, it may have been days later, I remember reading passages uh, uh, in just regular Bible reading, going through with no particular purpose for why I pick what book, and then within days, something came to my attention that directly, uh, was directly related to something God revealed in his word. I, but the only way you can have this happen is if you're spending regular time with it. Because it's fresh in your mind, it's fresh in your thoughts and your heart, and you're able to immediately make the relationship between something God has moved in your life and what is there written in the Word. It's living and active. Do you believe that? You're living and active as a person. Go hand in hand with it. If we were half as disciplined about the Scriptures, we were about other things we regiment in our day. I think our lives would be drastically different for the kingdom. So start just as an individual doing this. Now, if you are someone who leads a household, you're a father, you are commissioned by God, Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6, to be training your family in this. Now, if you're like me and you married way up, utilize that in the training of your children. I don't come from a background that regularly exposed, uh, where I was regularly exposed to the word. It's difficult for me, left on my own, to be that disciplined in the leadership of my own family. But in partnership with my wife, I am able to keep much more consistent develop something that wasn't there in my life before I even met my wife, quite frankly. Now I can develop that and start that as a new legacy, a new heritage. I'm not doomed to repeat to what I came from as far as practice goes. Now I can start a new heritage where my children don't know anything but spending time in the Word every day. It's not beat over the head with it. It's simply looking and exposing yourself to something that Jesus said every day. Now when we go to bed and it's a little late and we're ready to rush the kids off to sleep, we pray with them. We haven't done devotions. We hear it every time. We try to go right to bed. So here we are at 11.15, doing devotions, which simply means in our house, read a portion of Scripture, talk a little bit about it, sing a few songs of praise, pray together, and go to bed. Sometimes that means trying to manhandle one while the other two are listening. It doesn't look perfect every time, but it teaches this concept that consistent exposure to the Word is the priority And just like we have to eat a meal every day, every day we've got to spend time in his word. We could spend the next three hours talking about direct ways to apply the message that the word of God is living and active. I just encourage you to consider that it is God's word drawn. It's his sword. What side of the sword are you on? And I believe I know what side you're on, what side you want to be on. You wouldn't be here otherwise. So how are you practically making that work in your own life? practically demonstrating it to the lives of your children. How are we propagating this belief that the Word of God is living and active? It's defensive and offensive. It's piercing and revealing. Do you not agree with me that this would start and spark a reformation if just the people of God in their own households would start having regular exposure to the Word of God like this? I believe it's true. I believe we could see this. God is calling us to consider The unbelieving Israelites in chapter 4 of Hebrews. What happened to them when they disobeyed, when they disbelieved? We now, as a covenant people of God today, have the opportunity not to make that mistake. To study his word. To recognize it's living and active.
and see God change the world through his people. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your living and active word. I thank you that it gives us the antidote to unbelief, indecision, and disobedience. Lord, we need exposure to your word. We live busy lives. We have many things that are profitable in their self. But Lord, we look back at just how much time we've spent studying your truth. I am, I am often ashamed. I pray, Lord, that you would be in a special way with my brothers and sisters here gathered, that you would give them time to spend in your word, even if it's just a few verses a day, as individuals, collectively, as a family. Lord, we believe your word is living and active. It's different than everything else that's been written. Lord, make us a people who just love your word, that your word, O oh Lord, is truly a garden. I pray that we'd bask in it, enjoy its fruit, and spread its wealth. Lord, I thank you for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.